All right, well, we continue on in Nehemiah. We're going to cover a whole chapter today, chapter 6. How many of y'all were here on Sunday? Good chunk of you. Well, you must need to hear this because this just happens to be the passage that uh, Andy referenced at the end of his sermon. And uh, we are in line um, with preaching it this week. And so we're going to be talking about the fearful kingdom. Now, let me ask you this. Someone comes up to you, maybe non-believer, brand new believer. Um, since we want to equip you as disciple makers, this is a good little role play here. And they say, um, fear. The Bible talks a lot about fear. Tons Tons and tons and tons about fear. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid. But then it tells us also to fear God. Is fear in and of itself a good thing or a bad thing? That's the question they have for you. What do you tell them? Because it says, don't be afraid over and over and over and over. But then it says, Proverbs 1, Proverbs 9. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who have fear have knowledge, have understanding. So, do we fear or do we not fear? Pastor's wife. <laughs> Good. Any other thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, part of it's how we define fear. Um, and, and ultimately, um, the object of our fear is the issue, right? Because here's what we know. When we talk about Nehemiah, we're talking about building the kingdom. He went to Jerusalem to um, build a physical wall. He's building physically the kingdom of God, or so to speak, in the Old Testament. Um, And and we know that we live in a um, spiritual kingdom of God. This is the primary message of Jesus, right? When he goes from city to city to city, he doesn't just say, hey, I'm here. There's lots of mercy. Hey, guys, tell everyone that um, uh, I love them and things are going to be great. Um, like that all might be good and, and true in, in many ways. But he says, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven over and over and over and over. That's what he ushered in in his earthly ministry. He came to tell us about it. And we know um, they thought it was going to be physical from the beginning that he was going to be a political king, that he was going to be there. He's going to overthrow the Roman government. They're waiting for that. They tried to make him that. And oftentimes he pushed away from that and said, nope, I'm going to go. I'm going to go rest. I'm going to go to a mountain. I'm going to pray. Um, because he knew that he was ushering in a spiritual kingdom. And one day he's going to be back again to show us the physical kingdom. But we live in a tension now because we're born into sin and we're born into a world um, that is the kingdom, the world's kingdom, Right? This kingdom is where usually you and I are our own kings and we exist for our own joy, our own happiness, our own pleasure. And we have the right to pursue happiness in this country and we take full advantage of that. And we see people and things and relationships and stuff revolving around us meant to make us happy. And we're really displeased when things don't satisfy us. And we cram our lives full of stuff that we think can satisfy us, but we don't ever find full satisfaction. And so we build, build, build a kingdom that ultimately God says is centered around us for our own glory. And it leads to death and it leads to hell. But Jesus comes and he says, I can save you. And he saves sinners. And those whose faith is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we know are saved by grace. And we enter into a new kingdom where God reigns in us. And Jesus is the king. And ultimately, we exist to serve him. And the world doesn't revolve around us. But we revolve around Christ and in Christ. And we're meant to bless and serve other people. And ultimately, what God says about himself and what God's done for us and who God says you are and what God tells you to do will bring you satisfaction unlike the world knows. It's completely flipped upside down. It's an upside down kingdom. And so this kingdom, 
and the kingdom that most of us are used to are at odds. Here's the thing. Two kingdoms both have fears. Only one kingdom's worth fighting for. Only one kingdom's worth fighting for. There's obviously fears in the worldly kingdom. Your bills, your kids, the unknown, what's going to happen next, our health. What do I do with my life? Then there's fears in the kingdom of God in that we fear God, not because he um, is going to pour his wrath out on us. If we're in Christ, right, then the wrath has been poured out on his son. Um, But we respect him and we fear the idea that and understanding God is God. (laughs) We're not. And it should make us tremble that God is God. All right. There's a reason why um, you couldn't look at him without death. In the Old Testament, Moses got to see the end of his glory, and that's it. And so, you um, you got to decide which kingdom, if fear abounds in both, which kingdom am I going to be focused on? And four times in chapter six, Nehemiah tells us that his enemies. Remember chapter four um, and five talked about outside enemies, and then we talked um, about um, some oppression and whatnot happening inside um in chapter five inside uh the walls of jerusalem but now we're going back out to his enemies some old characters are coming back into play and uh they attack again and it says he says four times they were there to make him afraid to intimidate him to drive him into fear and he says back in chapter five that he fears the lord so there's a fear that they want him to have his enemies um it's a worldly fear fear of his own life, his reputation. Um, But then there's a fear that's good. And so we're going to be talking about the fearful kingdom. Both of them got fear, but let's leave our old kingdom for the new one in Christ. We'll jump in. Verses 1 through 19. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies, we've heard about them quite a bit in the first six chapters, heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Sambalay and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hekaferim in the plain of Ono. So it's about seven miles away. But they intended to do me harm. And what it means is, he thought, they're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. We find that out later as well. In verse three, and I sent to them, I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sambalay, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now, come and let us take counsel together. He wants to be his friend now. Hmm. We'll see. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Is this not like a little bit like a soap opera? I guess it gets a little Jerry Springer in this episode. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. 
Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night or tonight. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid, there's one of those, be afraid, and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elo in 52 days. So that's it. The wall's built. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law to Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshalam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. All right. Four truths about fear. Um, we're going to split this up into a few sections. Let's walk through it verse by verse. First thing we see is fear is unrelenting. The unrelenting fear comes at you. says, five times, Tobiah, Sambalay, they sent messengers five times, four times over and over. Think of the persistence. They're like, man, we're going to get you. We're going to get you. Nehemiah, even, I mean, come on, man. If you've got a decent heart, if you've got a good heart, you're going to come to us. We want to help you. We, we, I know we've been against you, but now we want to meet you. Let's go outside. Let's meet. But he had wisdom. He had discernment to know. Mm. If you didn't want us to build this in the first place, you're probably not going to want to help me. You find out in life, who, who cares about the things of God? Who cares about the kingdom of God? God can use people far from him for his kingdom, but not all people far from him certainly care about his kingdom. So this is one more trick. Lies, 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 lies. It says, finally, a fifth time. We see in verses three and four, a fifth time he came and gave him a letter comes over and over and over and over. And what all did he have to fear, right? We know in his life, um, in this moment, it wasn't too different than what you and I face. Like right off the bat, we see peer pressure. So other leaders in the area, that's what Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, they were. They were essentially governors. And we know from the last passage, he's a governor. And so they come from the north, the south, the east, the west, all around. And they were scared because they didn't want Jerusalem to rise up. They didn't want another big dog. They wanted to be um, in power and in control like they were before. So it's a threat to them. But the peer pressure coming from them. A lot of people have a plan for your life, right? It's easy to fear things, unrelenting fear, things that come over and over. How many times have you found yourself saying, oh gosh, I don't want to do this, but here's what people are going to think about me. Oh, I don't want to do this, but I know my parents have a plan for me. Oh, I don't want to do that, but... Oh, my coworkers would be disappointed. Lots of people have a plan for you. Some might be of God, some might not, but you've got to recognize them. He also faced physical harm. Death. It's going to come get you. We know by later in the story, he's saying, they're going to kill you. They're going to kill you out there. They're going to come and kill you in here because you didn't want to go out there to see him. 
you're going to die. How many times do you find yourself fearing physical ailments? You find your friends um, have all kinds of ailments, right? Cancer. It's one of those things where when I was a kid, and maybe it was just because I was a kid, you didn't seem to hear as many people have cancer. Now it feels like every time you turn around, a good friend, someone in the family has cancer. You're just like, what is going on? Where is this coming from? It just, and maybe it's just your own perspective, me being a younger guy. Maybe it's always been this way and we just didn't know. But it just feels like it's intensifying. So you start worrying about things. Maybe I'm going to get cancer. Everyone in my, my, my family has heart issues or blood pressure issues. Maybe I'm going to have these same things. You can worry about your own life. What if I die? What if something happens to my kids? The unrelenting fears that you experience ain't too much different than him. Attacks. They come. They say, listen, we're going to attack you. Attack your reputation. We're going to tell the king of Persia who you left, who you had a good reputation with. We're going to tell him you're going to start a rebellion. Do you want to be king? How many times do you have fears of insecurities, inadequacy? I'm not good enough. What are they going to think about me? I can't do this. And sometimes it feels like it's waves over and over and over. I mean, do you face the same fears now that you had five years ago? Ten years ago? In some cases, they've changed. Changed topic. Changed intensity. Some you've added. Some have gone away. But isn't there like perpetual fears that we all tend to face? Let me ask you, are they going to go away? Like, you got to stop and ask yourself, are you just fighting against the waves of worry? Thinking, well, I can do a few things to help ease and calm the storm, but like ultimately I'm in this ocean and I'm getting beaten down. How are they going to stop? You know, if you look at a beach and you see a million pieces of sand, you know, um, you know it didn't start that way. That it was one rock, two rocks becomes three. And as the waves come and the wind comes and it freezes and it thaws and it goes back and forth, that one rock turns into a million little pieces. And some of us feel like that's what fear's doing to my life. It's unrelenting. I'm worried and anxious about the same stuff, stressed about the same stuff over and over and over. And you say, I know they came to Nehemiah five times. It feels like they're coming to me 500 times. Worry about what people think about you. Worry about how you're not good enough. Worry about you fill in the blank. Some of us feels like it's a matter of time. The reality is, um, if you're concerned with a worldly kingdom and only a worldly kingdom, there's a lot to fear. And it ain't going to go away. And there's a false hope in a lot of people who don't know Christ that maybe if I just push through, it'll all go away. Let me give you four um, common, both in the church and outside of the church, coping mechanisms with fear um, that I just want to rifle through that, that I think we need to call out for a second. Number one, ignore it. You ever have someone tell you, don't worry. I had an anxiety order, disorder growing up. You guys know my story. And I worried every day about embarrassment every day about my reputation every day about getting sick i didn't want to go to school had all kinds of issues and people around me would hear my story they feel sorry for me and you know what they tell me they say, don't worry <laughs> thank you thank you for that advice it's incredibly powerful how's that working out for you it's easier said than done but shouldn't you worry about some things 
especially in a worldly kingdom, not necessarily even the kingdom of God. I mean, think about it. If you got a friend and they got debt, like up to their eyeballs in debt, credit card companies, if you tell them, just ignore it. Don't think about it. Would that be good advice? No, because bills turn into debt collection. Debt collection turns into bankruptcy. It's not good advice. Number two, minimize it. You ever found yourself saying, it's not that big of a deal. Your spouse is worried. Um, your friends talk about the same drama over and over and over. And you're like, oh, gosh, how can I stop this? And so you just say the first thing that comes out of your mouth. And that is, it's not that big of a deal. Why are you doing this to yourself? Well, here's the thing. Fear is subjective. And what one person fears, another person doesn't. What's a big deal to one isn't a big deal. And so what you're saying is, what I think that you're stupid for fearing this. <laughs> or... Let's just be delusional together. Let me ask you this. If you're in the savannah, these are all incredibly relevant examples. You're in Africa. You jump out of that truck. You're on a tour, and there's a lion there. And you're five feet away, and that lion's growling at you, and there's no fence in between you. You got no weapons. You got no nothing. Would it be wise for you to turn around and say, he's just a little kitty cat. He's not that big of a deal. Or should you fear? In that case, fear would be good. Don't minimize it. That's saying, instead of God being powerful over my situation, I'm going to pretend like my situation isn't so powerful, but I'm not glorifying God. I'm just pretending like things are better than they are. We live for God's glory. So we don't minimize issues. We exalt God. Number three, embrace it. If you go to a self-help section of a bookstore, this is always the most popular. We don't want to run from fear. We don't want to pretend like it's not there. No, this is the way to do it. Yeah, you got to embrace it. You got to fight it. If you're a seventh grade girl and you're going to go to volleyball camp, you're going to have a t shirt that says something about no fear. And then you're going to have some weird little statement there and you're going to say, Yeah, I can't fear them, but I can do this. I can do everything. And you learn over time, we got to embrace fear. Sports, you got to embrace fear. In life, you got to embrace fear. Here's the thing adrenaline junkies die stupid deaths. Right? Like, think about jumping out of a plane because you learned you've got to embrace fear. You've got to attack it. And you realize the parachute ain't opening. How would you feel in that moment? Would you feel like this was the best way to address my fear? <laughs> was to go from one extreme to another, go from running from it to running towards it? No, you'll say, I'm prideful, and this is a dumb way to die. Number four, push through it. You hear this even in evangelical circles, right? I'm worried, I'm worried, I'm worried. Just get through it. Why? It's just a season. Are there seasons in life? Yes, the Bible teaches that. Is worry just a season? No, worry's not a season. It's perpetual. The season might change the topic of the worry, but there's always going to be opportunities. It ain't like your bills are just a season. (laughs) Your kids ain't just a season. The potential for the unknown and death isn't just a season. So we don't ignore them. We don't minimize them. We don't embrace them. We don't just push through. What does Nehemiah do? This is awesome. This is awesome. He says in verse 3, staying on the same point, and I sent messengers to him saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to come down to you? Isn't that great? 
He's saying, listen, I understand what's going on, but I'm doing something better. So here's the thing about life. You can be overwhelmed by fear in this world, but there's an overwhelming nature of God in your life that needs to be exalted. You need to be overwhelmed with the grace of God, with the work of God. You want to get overwhelmed with something, be overwhelmed with people going to hell and wanting and having a desire to reach them and to share the gospel with them. You've got to find something better to be worried about. The kingdom of God is worth fighting for because it's eternal. It's not temporary. Nehemiah is saying, it's not that those things don't exist. I'm not going to ignore what I believe you're calling me out to go meet you for. I'm not going to minimize it. I'm not going to embrace it. And I'm not just going to push through and do whatever. No, I got something better taking up my time. When you wake up in the morning and you got to choose, am I going to worry about work or am I going to be overwhelmed by my devotion? Am I going to be thinking about relationships and how jacked up they are? Not that you ignore them, but you need to be so overwhelmed by God's goodness and your relationship with him because you just spent more time in prayer than you did meditating about your own drama. And you start to find, it's not that the things of the world have gone away. It's just I have different perspective because I'm overwhelmed with a better work. The work God is doing in the world, the work God is doing in here. Let that overwhelm you. You'll see it over and over. I see it in the church all the time. One of the first attacks, tricks of the enemy, is that when he, when God starts a work in your heart, the enemy will try to switch your focus back onto a worldly kingdom. And you've got to get that focus back on his kingdom. Number two, the proper response to fear. Verse six, we see this. In it was written... It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building a wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. So he's, you ever sent text messages or just said something just to poke? Maybe a brother, a sister, a friend, like, oh, I'm just going to, I know this isn't true, but I just want to mess with you a little bit. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. It's interesting because <laughs> the same report is going to trick one of the prophets later um, to to, we see in a, in a few verses. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. So I'm, I'm a good guy now. Let's do this together. We can do it together. And then I said to him, I sent to him, no such things as you, have, you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind, for they all want to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. So this is the proper response to fear. Picture Nehemiah. Put yourself in his place, right? He knows Ezra chapter 4, right? Because this all happened at the same time. When there was originally a work starting, in Jerusalem, after it had been torn down, 587 B.C., now we're in the 400s, right? We're, it's like 455-ish um, for Ezra, and then uh, the 440, 441 for uh, Nehemiah. And so he knows, in Ezra chapter 4, it, it, it says that they stopped the work, the Persian king stopped the work because he thought, after these accusations, that the people in Jerusalem were going to rebel. So he's like, no, I'm not going to support something that's going to try to overtake my own kingdom. So this is in the back pocket of Tobiah. He's like, you ain't going to come out? You ain't going to meet me? Okay. Well, just so you know, everyone's talking about what's going to happen. I mean, picture being Nehemiah. He was the cupbearer for the king of Persia. He had things going on, and this guy trusted him. 
king trusted to send him. And he knows this isn't just a matter of the work stopping, even though this king has stopped the work before. This is a matter of starting war. Like, this is a huge deal. My reputation's on the line. This country's on the line. I just faced oppression and with my own people. How am I going to explain to them that because I'm a goofball and didn't take control of this situation, that now the Persian king's coming back saying, I gave you these resources and you're using them against me. We're going to destroy you. I mean, he's got like crazy tension probably going on in his heart. This is what the enemy does. He attacks the things that know that he knows you're weak in, that you're insecure in. So what does he do? This is important. If you get nothing, now we're going to get super practical here. And so I want you to think about things that you fear on a regular basis, maybe um, things that you, you just stressed about. And we're going we're gonna to get practical. If I was going to counsel someone, um, there's patterns in Scripture. You don't want to systematize all of Scripture, right? God's not, that's, that's not, God's bigger than that. But at the same time, um, this is something that you will see uh, affirmed throughout Scripture. There's three parts I want to mention to you. Uh, the first thing that he does, this is his response to fear. He calls out lies. So when you have thoughts coming in your mind, you take them captive, you make them obedient to Christ, right? Meditation is fertilizer for fear. And you've got to recognize that there's thoughts that come into your mind that are lies. And you've got to test them against truth. And you test them against truth because you've got to know Scripture. He says, no such things as you say, have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind. So he's not entertaining. How many thoughts do you entertain that you shouldn't entertain? That the thought in and of itself didn't rock your world, but when you drove home three nights in a row thinking about the same thing, now it's causing your blood pressure to go up. And you could have taken it captive. It was a lie that you entertained and you meditated on it. You gave it room to grow and cultivate in your mind. This is where the devil gets us. He thinks if I can get you to believe one lie, it'll start to spin your life out of control. Second thing he does is he says, he gets to the, he identifies the root cause or the issue. He says, for they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. So when, when you have fears, you need to number one know, is this a lie or is this true? Because there's, there, there's things that aren't lies. Like fear doesn't just always lie. But you got to know, what, what does the Word of God say about this topic? And the second thing, he says, you gotta, you got to identify the root cause. Here's what you wanted to do. I don't believe anything you're saying because here's what I know you, you want to make me afraid. You want the work of God to stop. you got to get to the root cause, the root issue of that fear, what's going on. And last but not least, he says, but now, oh God, strengthen my hands. you got to trust God. And you can play psychological games with yourself all day long. If it doesn't end with you trusting God, then it's just... Christian version of self-help. So let's walk through this. Calling out lies, identifying the root cause and issue, and then being able to hand that over to God. Let's let's just um let's do some hypotheticals here. Let's test it. And I want you to think so you can you can re-engage with me for a second. Um let's talk about health. Let's talk about um cancer. Say, maybe you fear something like that happening to you, right? Both my grandparents died of cancer. Um, My mom had cancer. I mean, cancer abounds in in my own family, maybe yours. Um, What are some lies that you might have about cancer? Like you might, if you have a thought, you might think, well, it's inevitable. People around me, it's inevitable. 
You test that against scripture. You test it against truth. Is it inevitable that you're going to get cancer? No. It's inevitable. Something wrong is going to happen. Something bad with my heart. You don't know my genetics. Not good. Is it inevitable? Um, If I get cancer, it would devastate everything. Well, it would be difficult, but the Lord is faithful, and he can take care of you. And if your kingdom is the one that his kingdom is, then like that kingdom doesn't get shaken. Earthly kingdoms get shaken. His kingdom doesn't. So he's got you. Those are just, just a few of the lies. Then you've got to ask yourself, you've got to move to the second thing. Identify the root cause and issue of, of that fear. So what's the, what's the big issue? Let's say you do get cancer. Let's identify. Let's just skip through the drama and get straight to it. Well, I fear it because you can fill in the blank. But you've got to ask yourself these questions. I fear it because I feel like my family needs me. And I got little kids, and if I died young, I don't know what would happen to them. Or I need my family, and they're my whole world. And honestly, I think I love my world on earth more than I love the potential of being in heaven. And so I know heaven's supposed to be good, but I am clinging to the things of this world. I don't want to get cancer because I fear that I would die because I have a hard time trusting God. And I know a lot of people have stories about being healed of cancer and God can glorify himself that way, but I think I would be the one that he would say, you know what, you've done a lot of bad things. I'm gonna let you go. And I don't know, and you can get down to the core of whether you feel like God even forgives you of sin and and core gospel issues. Does this make sense? But you gotta address them. And the third part's the most important. You gotta be able to trust God. You gotta be able to turn that over to God. If I was working with someone in, in, in just discipleship, this is when I would pray with them and talk about in prayer, being able to prayerfully hand that over, asking God to take this, waiting in prayer for a response to God, knowing what scripture says, he's faithful. You can lay those things at his feet, but being intentional and very specific about the burdens and the fears. Sometimes you can even visualize what's happening spiritually in your heart. But you've got to trust God as God and that the Bible is true. Um, we could go through a bunch of different things. Let me just ask you before we, we move on. Uh, is there anything that, that you fear, that you struggle with, that maybe this would be good even just as a group to throw out there? And we can walk through what might be the lies, what might be the root cause. We don't have to go crazy with it, but I want to give you an opportunity. If you'd like to talk more about this afterwards, I am. Um, I'd love to help if I can. But remember how Nehemiah responded. You can respond too. Number three, the proper perspective of fear verse 10 says now when i went this is when it gets a little bit more jerry springer it just keeps going 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 when i went into the house of shemiah the son of deliah son of mehetabel so just a heads up in second chronicles there is a deliah not a delilah but a deliah um, which is a dude's name we believe um, mentioned and it was part of the priest and so um, some believe that this if that's the same Deliah, then this Shemaiah would have been in a priestly um, lineage and he would have had access to the temple in ways that other people might not have. So that gives you 
potentially a little more context here. Son of Mahetabel, who was confined to his home. Now, we don't know what that means. Was he physically unable to walk? Was he just scared of what was going on? Who knows what that means? And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. I love this. I love verse 11. This is great. This is, um, this is proper perspective of yourself. I'm the leader of this community. I can't run. I got duties. But then at the same time, but I'm not God. I can't, I can't go. Just go into his temple. Uzziah, he knows because that was a hundred years before, well, several, a couple hundred years before him. He knows, he knows that story. He got leprosy. He knows the story of people dying in the temple. You can't just roam around into the Holy of Holies because that's where you'd be hiding. He says, I can't do that. I won't go in. And I understood and saw that God, it's interesting when, um, when, the kingdom you choose is the kingdom of God, um, and the Holy Spirit indwells us. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came on people. In the New Testament, the Spirit dwells in people. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit uh, would be on certain people. Um, in the New Testament, the uh, Holy Spirit indwells all believers in Christ. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would be on some people and then leave those people often. Um, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes in all believers and stays with all believers. But it's amazing when you um, are wrapped up in God's kingdom, how you have discernment and wisdom uh, that's different uh, than what the world experiences. And he understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Ah, oh, those dirty dogs. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid. So there it is over and over that I should be afraid. That's the third time. This is the fourth time. And act in this way and sin. So they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. This is incredibly important. So they could make me, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. You know, sometimes it's not um, fear itself that the devil just wants you to experience. It's the bad decisions that come from fear. It's the sin that you might commit when you're acting out of fear. See, Nehemiah had fear. He could have died. But a bigger fear, potentially sinning by going into the temple when he shouldn't, stopped him in his tracks. This is the, the better fear, all right? This is where you go from, man, the fears of this world are real, and they're not going away. But there's a bigger fear, a fear of not doing the Lord's will, a fear of sinning against God. And you can rest in Christ, but you should have, you should have a desire to want to do the things that please God. Knowing you can't gain or earn his favor any more than Christ has already given you. But as a child of God, you want to make your father happy. You want to please your father. You want to do his will. Nehemiah has that. See, the answer to worldly fears isn't the absence of fears. It's the presence of God. It's not um, that, that we want worldly fears to just go away. It's that we want bigger and better fears. Fear of not doing the Lord's will. There's a million different things that we can um, let fear mess up our perspective on. You look at this building situation, and we've got a family meeting on Sunday night to talk about 
potentially purchasing a building, you guys are familiar. Um, a lot of you are with the process we've been walking through. Behind the scenes, let me give you kind of a, a, a glance, and we're going to be meeting until late tonight um, again. But we have, we have uh, seven or eight godly folks, people that, that seek the Lord. Um, but they're, they're familiar uh, with business and commercial real estate in ways that I'm not. And the conversations behind the scenes is that we know this property is a hot commodity. We know that if we built that particular property new, it would cost six times that, what it's being sold for. We know um, who's looking at it in town. We know who has money, enough to be able to snag that thing up right now if they want it. And some of the men in that room know that there's certain people that if they heard we were looking at that particular property, would buy it tomorrow to either sell it to us or make sure we didn't get it. Right? They just... They just function in that world and they understand how things work. Think about making a decision like this and the peripheral fears that could guide us. Well, right now, we don't know of any other property in town that would even come close to not only matching what this is, but that would fit our congregation. That fear alone could make us purchase this building. Do we do that? Absolutely not. Just like if you're looking for a house and you move to a new city and you're like, we got to do something. Don't want to stay in hotels forever. You can make a decision out of a fear. It's not good. Or we know someone could snatch this up. We've had this, we've had, it, it turns into arguments, um, good arguments. Behind the scenes, men of God need to, need to, to some degree, kind of battle things out as we're wrestling with the things of God. I think it can be a healthy thing. Um, some of the discussions are, why not just buy it now and then tell the congregation? Because we're not congregationally led. There's no official vote. But we're led by a greater fear. The greater fear is that we want to shepherd well and we would lose trust with the congregation and that's what we would consider inappropriate. And we know that we don't want to buy a building out of fear that someone could snatch it up and realize that we hurt or cause disunity with the very people that we are trying to lead. On top of that, an even bigger fear, a better fear, is that we don't want to buy a property out of insecurity and realize afterwards, you know what? Maybe we got into the right property, but we didn't do it the right way. We didn't trust God that he could wait an extra week. If he wants us in the stupid building, he'll get us in the building. If he wants us in something else, if he doesn't want us in a building at all, he wants us to meet out in the city park all winter, all summer, then he can do that, and it would be just fine. Decisions you make all the time, you got to be careful that you don't give in to the lesser worldly fears, but you let the fear of wanting to make sure that you, you love the will of God and you will do the will of God no matter what overwhelm your decision-making. How many people have dated the wrong person because they feared not having anyone at all? How many people have bought the house that was a little more expensive, even though the one that was lesser expensive would have been the right one for their family and their financial situation, but they feared what their people and their friends and their family would think if they lived on that side of town? 
how many people don't have that hard conversation with their kids because they fear that their kids won't like them or might rebel against them? How many times do you do something compromising at work because you fear that you can lose credibility with the people trying to make you compromise? And so you do something you know you shouldn't. There's a bigger fear, and it's the one that I'm going to serve God no matter what, and I fear not doing that. Life is short. I know God's not going to lay his hand on me if I'm in Christ. But I want to make sure I do the Lord's will. There needs to be a passion for that. Last but not least, number four, the fruit of fear. So you got the unrelenting fear, that's all fear. You got the proper response to fear. You got the proper perspective of fear, and you got the fruit of fear. Verse 15 says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, and 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid. So interesting how it switched, it flipped on its head. He faced his fears by letting the biggest fear, fear of the Lord, guide his life. And now all of a sudden, those who were in control, or at least thought they were, are fearing God because they see God's power. They were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. It means in Hebrew that their pride disappeared. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. You see it over and over. You see it in Deuteronomy. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. When other nations see God. But this is why God has a chosen people. That they would live in such a way that all the nations would see and want to glorify that God. That they would be unique. This is what makes you stand out when you fear God above all else in life and his will directs your life. People see God's power in your life and they glorify God and that's why we exist. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them. And this next little section is essentially talking about some priests and how um, they tried to get in between Nehemiah and the priest. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him. So obviously Tobiah had some sort of whether just be manipulative characteristics, we know that, or some decent leadership skills and that people, people pledged themselves to him because he was the son-in-law to Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife also. This is, unless you, in case you weren't convinced, this, is, this guy was trying to manipulate things. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Interesting. Everything's flipped on its head. This is the end of that story, but this is where the beginning of our story should start. Where we see ultimately that you can choose to flip things on its head. That you can go from fearing the things of this world to fearing God above all. That you can be more consumed with his kingdom than your own kingdom. That you can deny yourself and die to that so that you don't end up in the end amazed by the power of God but outside of the will of God. That would stink. And this is the hope. Just like Nehemiah, he had a laser focus on doing the will of God and the power of God occurs. And so then God is glorified. Jesus on a cross had laser focus, not catering to what man wanted. Lots of people had a will and a plan for Jesus' life. They want to make him king. They want to, to hurt him. They want to ridicule. They want to do all kinds of stuff for him. And he does the Father's will over and over and over and over and over perfectly all through his life to the point of death, death on a cross, so that we can live in a kingdom where we are not producing 
Because all fear produces something. That our fear, because it's not just a worldly fear, doesn't just produce a life of worry and being worn out all the time. But a fear that leads to rest. Rest in the sovereignty of God. Rest in the cross. You see, Nehemiah learns that ultimately, fear can derail or prevail. If you fear man, you fear your own reputation, it can derail the things of God. If you fear God, the work of God prevails. And he sees that here. What if he stops? What if at any time he bows down to these dudes and says, you know what? I'm going to come talk to you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop building the wall. No, he accomplishes exactly what God willed for him to do it. Just like Jesus accomplished exactly what God willed for him. And you and I can be encouraged to accomplish God's will for our lives. Fear always produces something. There's always a fruit to fear. What's your fear producing? Well, like that original question, it depends on who and what you're fearing. If you're fearing things that you know God's saying, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, and all those don't be afraid passages are telling you not to fear, it might be a miserable life when you got the King of Kings and Lord of Lords wanting to show His power through your life. Don't bow down to the little fears. They might be big in your life. But when you got a bigger, better fear, fear of the Lord, it should overwhelm the other ones. God wants to show His power. That's how he's glorified. You guys know my story. I feel like I've mentioned it so many times, but it's worth mentioning um, as we start to wrap this up. I knew growing up, even when I was far from the Lord, that the core of my anxiety was self-centeredness. I feared at the very core every single day that I would get sick because I had an instance where I got sick in front of some family and friends and they mocked me and they ridiculed me and I was a little boy and I grew up in a kind of a sheltered home and it, it shattered my mind. And being in the fourth grade, I didn't know how to cope with that. I, I, I didn't know what it, to be publicly mocked. It just, it just kind of broke me. And ultimately, I didn't want a bad reputation. I wanted people to like me. I didn't want to be embarrassed. That drove every day of my life. I didn't do what other kids got to do. I didn't play sports. Some of the years I wanted to play sports. I, I, I stayed home from school so many times. We had a perpetual note in my house um, that just said, Ryan won't be in school today. And any day that I woke up and I felt like I couldn't do this, I just gave that to one of my siblings. I gave it to the secretary. I used that note a lot. I feared walking from my truck 50 feet into the building because I thought, what if I get sick? I mean, I was in mental torment all the time, and I felt like nobody around me could understand this. And we tried everything. I was a poster child for those 1990s um, uh, experimental drugs that you probably experimented on monkeys and me, the Paxils and the Xanaxes of the world long before they were common, um, I was trying them out. I did any and everything I could. We went to every kind of therapist, everything. We couldn't figure it out. And so when I gave my life to Christ, ultimately, I felt a call to preach, but I knew the very thing 
that I dreaded the most was the very thing he was calling me to. And so I've had to face this reality on a regular basis. And I've been in ministry full-time for six or seven years now, and I still face it. When I teach, I think I don't want to be in front of people. And yet this is where the power of God is in my life that I can say, this is the last thing I would personally want to be doing, but I don't live for my own kingdom anymore. I'm not the king. and That kingdom is gone. And I live in a kingdom where I want to glorify God. I don't want to preach if it's my own kingdom. I do want to preach. I fear preaching because I fear ridicule, but I don't bow to that kingdom anymore. And I fear more than that, not preaching, because I want the gospel to spread, the word to be taught, and the kingdom of God to expand. And so I got to ask myself even daily, which kingdom am I going to live in? And if you're in that world right now, I want to encourage you. It's normal to have fear. It's normal to be scared. But ultimately, Jesus doesn't give a rebuke or a bunch of self-help. I'm going to leave you with four verses from a man you guys know, John the Baptist. Now, you need to know this in context. He already baptized Jesus, and he said, the one who comes after me I'm not even worthy to untie their sandals. And he knew that's the Messiah. And he said, he must increase, I must decrease. But guess what? We don't talk about this passage very much. He's in prison. He's going to get his noggin chopped off. Maybe he knows that, maybe he doesn't. But he's starting to doubt. He's starting to question. And he says this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you, listen, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered, because John doesn't want to waste his life. He said, Did I give everything up for one who isn't the Messiah? And Jesus answered, You guys leave with this tonight. And Jesus answered, Go and tell John what you hear and see the blind receive their sight and the lame walk lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me jesus doesn't give them just a bunch of tips for their self he points those who fear to himself he says john you're freaking out you're wondering if it was all worth it you're wondering if you got it right You're starting to question. But look at me and look at what I'm doing. You see all these signs? This is what the board said was going to happen. Look at me and look at what I'm doing. And that's all he says. When you fear things of this world, we can tell each other, it's not that big of a deal. No, it is a big deal to you. Don't worry easier said than done. No, you look at Jesus and you look at what he's doing. Because he's doing a work in you. You've got to focus on that kingdom. It's a better kingdom. Let me pray for you.